Now, we come to chapter 3, and the church is a mystery. This is the last chapter in which we see here the doctrinal side. We go to the practical side in the next chapter. But now the church is a mystery. And in the first four verses, we have the explanation of the mystery. 5 through 13, the definition of the mystery. And then we have this second great prayer here, 14 through 21, prayer for power and knowledge. Now, I'd like to say a preliminary word for chapter 3 here. What do we mean when we say the church is a mystery? And there's a great deal of misunderstanding as to that. And there are two extreme viewpoints that have been made in our day, and these viewpoints, they are very much a mystery to me. That was not the intention of the apostle, to make it that kind of a mystery. The word for mystery bears no resemblance, by the way, to this modern connotation of whodunit. We're not talking here at all about Conan Doyle or Agatha Christie. Rather, it's something that had not previously been revealed, but it's currently made manifest. Now, in this case, it's the church which was not revealed in the Old Testament, but is solely a revelation of the New Testament. Now, Moffat translates the word mystery by divine secret. Weymouth uses the word truth. I like the expression divine secret. It was a divine secret. And a divine secret was something that God has not revealed up to a certain point. Now he's going to reveal it. We've been over this before when we saw the mystery in the first chapter. Now there are two extreme groups. One group ignores the clear-cut statement of Paul that the church is not a revelation of the Old Testament. They treat the church as a continuation of Israel in the Old Testament. And they appropriate all the promises that God made to Israel. Dr. Ironside showed me a Bible that he had years ago in his study. And back in the Old Testament, it had at the top the subjects. And it says, blessings for the church. It was really in the prophets. It was for Israel. Blessings for the church. Then they came to another page, and he showed it to me. It says, curses for Israel. It's quite interesting. The church took the blessings, but left the curses for Israel. But the interesting thing, both belong to Israel. And this other group, they place undue emphasis upon Paul's statement. He made known unto me the mystery and my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. They treat the mystery as the peculiar revelation of Paul. And I'm going to show that's inaccurate. As a result, there has been the pernicious practice of shifting the beginning of the church to some date after Pentecost. And on this sliding scale, several dates have been suggested. And when one becomes untenable, why, well, they adopt another one. This group has probably been after me more and fought me more than any other group in Southern California. When anyone says, I'm a hyper-dispensationalist, they must be wrong because the hyper-dispensationalist probably fought me more than any other individual in this area. And I'm glad for it because I think that a man's known by the enemies he makes. If you want to know what position I hold, ask the liberal in Southern California and ask the hyper-dispensationalist and ask those who are not conforming their lives to the Word of God and don't like Bible study. And I like my enemies. They tell a great deal about me, by the way. And so, these are two extreme positions. 
Now, there have been two ways of interpreting a mystery. One is to entirely ignore it and go back and find the church back in the Old Testament and talk about the church there as being Israel. And I had a professor in a denominational seminary that he traced the church back to the Garden of Eden. Now, you can't beat that, friends. You couldn't go much farther back than that. Well, it's not in the Old Testament. Paul says it's a mystery, which means that it was not revealed in the Old Testament at all. And the other extreme is to become a hyper-dispensationalist, and that means that you have several dispensations after the day of Pentecost. Now, on the day of Pentecost, something happened. And to wash back and forth over Pentecost as if you're the tide washing over the beach, I think it's entirely wrong. Something happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came, began forming the body of believers. That'll continue until he takes the church out of the world. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. That is, when we're taken out of the world and presented to Christ. Now you have, first here, the explanation of the mystery. Now there is a mechanics to this section, and that's the reason I suggested that you have the Scripture before you in order to follow this, because it will make it more meaningful to you. Paul says here in the first two verses, "...for this cause I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles." Now, actually, there begins a parenthesis. And that parenthesis goes down to verse 14. And in other words... Because of these marvelous privileges that are now accorded to Gentiles, and Paul enumerated them back in chapter 2, we were far off, strangers without hope and without God. Now, all that's been rectified. Through Christ, we've been brought in. Now, because of all that, Paul's going to pray for them. And he starts out, "...for this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles." And then drop down to verse 14, he says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, everything between that is a parenthesis, and that actually is where he's talking about the mystery. Before he came to his prayer, he says, If so be, that is, upon the supposition, that ye heard of the dispensation, or the economy, of the grace of God which is given me, to you. Now, this if so here, it marks the beginning of the parenthesis. In verse 14, he'll pick that up, you see. That is the prayer. Now, in between, he says, ye heard of the economy. That is the dispensation. Will you notice that? That he says here, if you've heard of the dispensation, now that's the economy of the grace of God. You and I are living in the dispensation of grace. Now, when somebody says, Now, I don't like that, McGee. I'm not a dispensationalist. All I can say to you is you ought to be, if you believe the Bible, you're some kind of a dispensationalist. Now, you may not be one like I am. I hope you're not an extreme one. But I hope you believe that we live today in the dispensation of the grace of God because that's exactly what Paul's saying here. I didn't say it. I didn't coin this word. Dr. Schofield didn't coin it in the Schofield Bible. It came out of the epistles of Paul, if you please. He uses the word. Others use the word. If you've heard of the economy 
of the grace of God which was given me toward you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote unto you before in few words. Now, you remember back in chapter 1, verse 10, we spoke of this word dispensation. He is speaking of the divine plan and the arrangement by which God had called and sent him to the Gentiles as compared to the other apostles. Paul's ministry was different and special. That is, Paul had said to the Galatians, but contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. The message was not different, but the ones to whom the message was to be given were different folk in a different category. Paul went to the Gentiles and told them, you've been far off, now you can be brought in. Peter went to his own people, to Israel, and he said to them, there's none other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Same gospel law. And Paul said to Philippian jailer, Gentile, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. They now go to two different groups of people. Now, these are being brought in to something that's brand new. Now, that was a different economy than you have back in the Old Testament, you see, or a different dispensation. Paul was a Pharisee before, and he lived by the law. He never went out and preached to Gentiles. That was a different economy he was under. Now he's under a new economy, and it's altogether different. But God's mode of salvation has always been the same, because back under law, he didn't save them by keeping law, but by bringing the sacrifice when they saw that they had come short of the glory of God, and that sacrifice pointed to Christ, you see. Now, what is this that he's going to talk about, this economy? Now, he says, how, verse 3 and 4, how that by revelation, that is, by the apocalypsin, the mystery, that is, the sacred secret, was made known to me. That is, now, Paul says, the mystery was made known to him. Now, on the basis of this, there are those that immediately say, these hyper-dispensationalists, they say, well, now, Paul was the only one that had the mystery. That is, they used to say that. I don't know whether they still say it or not. I have very little contact with them today, by the way, but after studying the third chapter of Ephesians here, I expect to have a whole lot of contact with them. I'm sure that they'll be writing to straighten me out concerning this. Now, he's going to make it very clear in this chapter that This that has been revealed was not revealed to him alone. Let me drop down to verse 5. "...which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus by means of the gospel." Now, that was something you see that all the apostles had. So, Paul here, speaking of himself, here at the beginning, he says, since he's writing to them, and he's had his ministry with the Ephesians, he says, it was made known to me, but is also made known to the other apostles, as I've written in few words, whereby when you read, ye may perceive my insight 
That is my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which is Christ, of course. Now, in other words, by revelation means that Paul's conversion, when Christ informed him that when he persecuted the church, he persecuted Christ. The church was the body of Christ. And Paul found out for the first time God is doing something new, that a church had come into existence. And that, you see, was on the day of Pentecost. Now, the mystery, the sacred secret, as we've said before and we continue to repeat it, was not a whodunit, nor was it something mysterious. It was specifically something not revealed in the Old Testament. Therefore, it was unknown to man, because it could only be known by revelation. But now it's revealed in the New Testament. And this word is used 27 times in the New Testament, It refers to about 11 different mysteries. Paul seems to be making a contrast, actually, with the mystery religions of the Greco-Roman world. And there were many in that day. These were secret lodges in which sadistic rites were performed. And the initiate was warned not to reveal the secrets of the mystery religions. And I have in my study that I made, in fact, it was a thesis I wrote, when I was in seminary on the mystery religions. This is something that even today not too much is known about. And yet we do know a great deal about them, but very few Christians seem to know about them. Now, in contrast, Paul says, "'Woe is me if I preach not the gospel.'" And we are stewards today of the mysteries of God. That is, we are to give the message out. This is not something to be kept in a secret lodge. This is something to be shouted from the housetop. Now, Paul had made brief reference to the mystery back in verse 9 of chapter 1. You will recall, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. He mentions it there. And then you come on down and you find that, again, Paul mentions this matter of the mystery in the second chapter, verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of petition between us. And this was something that had not been revealed before, you see. And in that sense, it was a mystery. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make of himself of two, one new man, so making peace. Now, this was something that was, you see, not revealed before. Now, the mystery is that Christ is risen. He's head of a new body made up of Jews and Gentiles and of all tribes and peoples of the earth. This was not revealed in the Old Testament. Paul, you remember, put it like this in Romans sixteen twenty-five. He says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. You see now, he makes clear here what he's talking about. The mystery was not revealed before. And in Colossians 1:26, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to his saints. Now, anybody that goes back into the Old Testament says this is the church, back in the Old Testament, you know something that apparently God wasn't telling. And I would say you're almost smarter than the Lord is. You've more or less usurped his place because you're telling something that 
He didn't tell, and he didn't make it known and that back in the Old Testament wasn't there. And apparently these folks know something that God didn't know back in the Old Testament. My friend, may I say to you, the mystery means he didn't reveal it in the Old Testament. And since he didn't reveal it, it's not there. Now we have here the definition of the mystery. Which in other generations... Now I'm reading verses 5 and 6 of the third chapter which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of man, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and of the same body, that is, fellow members and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus by means of the gospel. Paul now clarifies what he means by the mystery. And there is a sharp contrast between the sons of man in past generations and the apostles and the prophets of the church. No one in the Old Testament had a glimmer of light relative to the church. It's now revealed to the holy apostles, and holy because they've been set aside for this office for God. And the prophets here are definitely New Testament prophets. The Holy Spirit is the teacher of this mystery. The Lord Jesus said this in John 16:15, "...all things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, he'll take of mine and show it unto you." Now, what is the mystery? And here I want to make a distinction, and don't miss it, friends. The mystery was not that Gentiles would be saved. The Old Testament taught that. Let me give you a passage or two. Isaiah eleven ten, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Again, Isaiah 63, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. In Zechariah 2, 11, And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And Malachi 1.11, Far from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. Now, what is the mystery then? If it's not the mystery that Gentiles are to be saved. The mystery... Now, will you hear me very carefully? The mystery was that Gentiles and Israelites were placed on the same basis... By faith in Christ, they are brought into a new body, and that body is the church. Don't miss that. And Christ is the head of this new body. This, therefore, has caused a threefold division in the human race. Now, you have this division of the human family. From Adam to Abraham, it's 2,000 years plus, all were Gentiles. From Abraham to Christ, there were Jews and Gentiles, about 2,000 years. All right, we now come from Christ, the day of Pentecost, to the rapture. And that's been now 2,000 years plus. Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. That's exactly what Paul said, as we've said before. 1 Corinthians 10:32. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God. Now, Paul took in the human family when he said that. There's no fourth group 
And it's not just two groups. There's Israel, Gentiles, and the church of God. Now, the church is not in the Old Testament de facto. Now, I think there are types of it back there, but it's not a revelation. Christ said, on this rock I will build my church. And at that time, it was future. And you're in the New Testament when he said that. The church began on the day of Pentecost, and to go beyond Pentecost makes the body of Christ Siamese twins, a Jewish church and a Gentile church coexisting. And the church is not Siamese twin. It began on the day of Pentecost, all Jewish, yes. And then you have that period of transition when Gentiles are brought in. The church is one body made up of both Jew and Gentile, and that means Gentiles include all the peoples of the world. Now, Paul said, "...of which I became a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, which was given me according to the working of his power." Now, Paul assumed no place of superiority in the knowledge of the mystery by virtue of the fact that he was the apostle of the Gentiles. He takes only the title of diakonos, a worker or a helper, a deacon. It was the gift of God's grace which had transformed him from Saul, the proud Pharisee who persecuted the church, to Paul the apostle, who was now a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and took him out of one group and put him in another, and he's now a member of the body of Christ. All that had been accomplished was through the working of the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul had both the gift and the power. Now, verses 8 and 9. To me, who am less than the least. And that is really something here. He says, I'm more least than anyone else. Of all the saints is this grace given to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see What is the dispensation or the economy of the mystery? Now, we are living today in the economy or the dispensation of the mystery of the church, the gospel of grace, which from the ages past has been hid in God who created all things. You want to know something? There are a lot of things God hasn't told us yet. That's one of the reasons that I'm anticipating heaven is because some of you don't think I know very much. And if you'll not let it out, you're right. Please don't tell anybody, because I do have a few people fooled. But you know, when you and I get to heaven, we are really going to be smart. We're going to start learning things. God hadn't told us very much. It's amazing how little God really told us. You know, he never told anybody about that little Adam. He never told about diamonds being down in the earth. He kept all that to himself. He let man find out a lot of things. A lot of things man can't find out. It can only be known by revelation. And the church was a mystery in that sense. Now, Paul says, I became a minister, a diakonos, a deacon, according to the gift of the grace of God, which was given me according to the working of his power. That is, the junimus power. Now, to me, I'm less than the least. It was given to me to preach this. I'm the least of the apostles. And Paul says, I'm not meek to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And he thought 
of what he was and then of what the grace that God had done for him. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, he hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who before was a blasphemer, persecutor. What a mighty revolution took place in the life of Paul to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, how wonderful. And to make all men see the economy, the dispensation of the mystery, that which was revealed in the past is now revealed. Now, he says, in order that now there might be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies through the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the purpose of the ages which he wrought in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access in confidence through our faith in him. Now, another purpose of the mystery is revealed here. God's created intelligences are learning something of the wisdom of God through the church. They not only see the love of God displayed and lavished upon us, but the wisdom of God is revealed to the angels. And how wonderful that is. Therefore, he says in verse 13, Wherefore I entreat you that ye not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Because of the great goals of the mystery, which Paul has enumerated, he's willing to suffer imprisonment as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he didn't want the Ephesians now to lose heart and be discouraged because the imprisonment of Paul was working for his good and their glory. And he says, "...who now suffer, rejoice in my sufferings for you, fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church." He said that in Colossians 1.24. Now, next time, we're going to look at Paul's second great prayer that is shared. Read it before we come to it, friends. This is wonderful. We're treading on the high places in this epistle. Now, friends, we've come in this third chapter where we see the church is a mystery. And Paul has dealt with that in what is actually the parenthesis in the chapter. Now, you'll recall that with verse 1 of the chapter, I dropped down to verse 14. That's where we are today. So let's go back and tie the strings together again, and this parenthesis comes in between. And I also should add, it is an emphasis, too. Now, verse 1 reads, "...for this cause I, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." And he says, "...for this cause I bow my knees." Naturally, we say, well... What cause? Well, it was because of his deep interest in these Ephesians, and he wanted them to enter into the great truth here of this dispensation, this new economy that we live in, and to experience all the riches of his grace that's in Christ Jesus. All of this is the cause now, and that which was in the background. Now he says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several things here, even in this verse, I'd like to call attention to. 
Now, when we were looking at the prayer that's back in the first chapter, I mentioned what a great man of prayer Paul really was, and that we know him as an apostle, a preacher, a teacher, but not so much as a man of prayer. And I called attention to some of the characteristics of his prayers that were there. Now, in this verse, we have another characteristic of the prayers of Paul, and this prayer reveals a posture in prayer. Now, I hope I'm not splitting hairs, but here it is. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not insisting that in our public prayer meetings today that we all get out on our knees. However, I rather wish that we did. One of the best meetings I ever had was as a young preacher in my first pastorate. I went up into Middle Tennessee to the old Stones River Church. It was right near where the battle of Stones River was fought in the Civil War. In fact, there's a cemetery that is there. And it's a little country church. And I never shall forget that first night when I began. I said, let's bow our heads in prayer. Well, they did more than bow their heads. I shut my eyes and I heard a rumbling And I thought everybody got up and walked out. So I ventured to take a look. And I did. I opened one eye and looked. And, you know, I didn't see a soul. And I thought they'd really walked out on me. But since I was praying to the Lord, I just continued to pray. And then I said, Amen. And then I opened my eyes. And, you know, here came all these people up. And that little old country church was packed out. They came up just like corn coming up out of the ground those pews. They'd all got down on their knees. And you know, we had a wonderful meeting. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying just because we got down on our knees that we had a great meeting. I do want to say this. I think it helped a great deal. I'm afraid today that in the formality and the ritual even of our nice new churches and our plush seats and carpets on the floor that today We are missing something in our relationship to the Lord. My feeling is there ought to be more of the easy familiarity in worship and more reverence for God, especially at the time of prayer. Our proper place, we are a creature. We ought to go down on our all fours before Almighty God. And Paul said that's the way he prayed. And I've always felt that it's a good way to pray. I used to pray. Now, I must confess now with arthritis, I don't do it like I used to. But I used to get down right on my face, right down in the study, and pray there. And it's amazing how it helps you to pray. And this is something I think that's good for man. Now, I'm not going to insist on this, but I'm just calling your attention. This is the way Paul did it, and I think he's a very good example for us today. Aren't we told also that our Lord went forward there in the garden of Gethsemane and fell on his face. You know, it wouldn't hurt a lot of us saints to fall on our face. I think that would be the proper place for us to get down on our face. Now we have something else in this verse. He says, I bow my knees unto the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I know you're going to think that I'm splitting hairs. I hope that I'm not splitting hairs here. But I think this is rather important. What we have here is Paul prayed to God the Father, 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that back in that first prayer in Ephesians 1, 17, he says that he addressed his prayer to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we find that that was his formula. And I think it's a rather tight formula to address all prayers to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, somebody says, say, you are splitting hairs, aren't you? No. Listen to the Lord Jesus. In John sixteen twenty three, he says, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. These men, when they were with him three years, I think they were like a group of children in many ways. I think it was gimme, gimme a great deal of the time. Now he says to them, I'm leaving you, and you're not going to ask me anything. But whatever ye will ask the Father in my name. Now what does he mean by that? He means simply this, that when you and I pray to the Lord Jesus directly to him, we rob ourselves of an intercessor. You see, he's our great intercessor. And that's what it means to pray in his name. It means to go to God with a prayer that the Lord Jesus himself can lift to the Father for you and me. And that's what it means to pray in his name. And I think that we ought to be very careful in our prayer life. Now, I was in a service. You know, I guess being retired now, I noticed things I never noticed before. They called on a visiting brother to pray for the meeting at this conference. And we got off to a good start, marvelous start. But this brother slowed us down that night a great deal because the music had been excellent. pastor did a fine job of presiding. Then they called on this brother to pray. And I counted three times that he came around and prayed for me. My feeling was, when I heard him say it the second time, you don't need to tell the Lord that again. He heard you the first time. And then when he came around the third time, I said to myself, he'll turn the Lord off now because the Lord will get tired of hearing that repetitious prayer. Well, my feeling was that wasn't needful. Now, of course, I guess after this brother looked me over, he decided I needed praying for three times. But nevertheless, I feel like that is vain repetition that the heathen use. I think we ought to be very careful about our prayer life. My, when you and I are going to make a talk before a group of people, we certainly prepare ourselves, don't we, for this broadcast. I try to get ready for it, and most of the time I'm here with just the Bible. But I've got preparation back of it, friends. It may not look that way, but I surely do. And we always, if we're going to talk to other people, well, why do we in our prayer life, especially in public prayer, when you've got a group of people there, you get up and go all the way around Robin's house, and then you take off down through the country and around the world. And after you make a trip around the world, everybody's a little exhausted for the evening service. So that the thing interesting here is, that Paul went directly to God the Father and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now another characteristic that follows along with this. You notice this prayer is brief. And did you notice that the other prayer of Paul was brief? And the prayer of Paul in Philippians, the fourth chapter, it's a brief prayer. All of Paul's prayers were brief. 
Very brief. And did you notice that all of the prayers in Scripture are brief? The Lord said, When ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. And all Bible prayers are brief prayers. Moses' great prayer for Israel only takes three verses. Elijah on top of Mount Carmel giving that great prayer there as he stood alone for God against the prophets of Baal. Only took one verse in a tight situation like that. I think I would have used at least two or three verses. And then Nehemiah's great prayers crowded into seven verses. And these other great prayers in Scripture, the Lord's Prayer, which is John 17. I can read that in three minutes. That's all it took the Lord to pray that prayer, by the way. I had here in Pasadena years ago, in fact, way back in the 40s, about 42 and 3, a program on the radio, and I asked questions of the audience and had them send in answers. And those that got the answer in first, that is, the earliest postmark, we would give them a prize. And one of the questions I asked was, what is the shortest prayer in the Bible? And the first week I didn't get an answer. Second week I didn't. That is the correct one. And then in the third week, I got the correct answer. And you know what that shortest prayer in the Bible is? Well, it's that prayer of Simon Peter. Lord, save me. And he's out there on the water. And so many people wrote in and said, well, I didn't think that was a prayer. It was so short. Well, my friend, that was a prayer. And it was answered immediately. You see, if Simon Peter had prayed that prayer like some of us preachers pray on Sunday morning, Lord, Thou who art the omnipotent, the omniscient, the omnipresent one, Simon Peter would have been 20 feet underwater before he got to what he wanted. But I tell you, he got down to business. And Paul's prayers are brief prayers also. Then let's look at the content of this prayer and notice what he prayed for. He says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And by the way, God has a wonderful family. A great many folk think that when they pray, it's me and my son John, his wife, and us four, no more. But it's a little wider than that. And then there are folk that feel like their little clique in the church is about the only one that the Lord's listening to. And then there's some people think their local church is just about it. That constitutes the saints. And then there are others that think their denomination is the only one. And then there are others that think that it's just the church. Just those saved from the day of Pentecost to the parousia. My friends, God saved people long before the church came into existence. He's going to be saving them after the church leaves. They're all going to be in the family of God, but they're not in the church. And then God has other members of his family, his angels or his family. And he has created intelligences. John, when he saw them, he said, you can't number them. And, of course, he didn't have one of these latest gadgets of putting it through the computer. But he said he couldn't number them. So there must have been quite a group. All of those are the family of God. Now he says here, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Now, 
he prayed here this marvelous prayer that they might be strengthened with power in the inner man. Now, we pray a great deal for the outward man. And don't misunderstand me. I think that is a marvelous way in which to pray, to pray for the physical needs of folk. And Paul did. He prayed for himself, for that thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times about it. And it's very wonderful to know that God does hear and answer prayer. Now he says here, will you notice it, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now again, I have to call attention to it's according to, not out of his riches. If he took it out of his riches, it'd been like Mr. Rockefeller, who used to give that caddy a dime. Well, he gave it out of his riches, not according to his riches. If he'd given it according to his riches, the boy would have walked off with his pockets filled with dimes. And now God always answers according to his riches. And Paul prayed for the Philippians like that. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, the petition is that the believers might be strengthened with power by his Spirit into the inner man. You see, the spiritual nature of the believer needs prayer as well as the physical. How often the spiritual today is neglected while all the attention is given to the physical side. Paul prays for the inner man, for he realizes the outward man is passing away. Now, in this second petition here, he prays that Christ, now will you notice this, Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. Paul is praying here that Christ might dwell in their heart. This is to think the Lord's thoughts after him, ye and me and I and you. Paul could exclaim, Christ liveth in me. In Christ is the high word of this epistle. And the wonderful thing, the counterpart of it is that we're in Christ. That's our position. And Christ is in us. That's our possession. And that is the practical side down here because Paul could say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, "...examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not of your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate." Christ has not come as a temporary visitor. He's come as a permanent tenant by the Spirit to live in our lives. I am the vine Ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. Now, this third petition here is that the knowledge surpassing love of Christ, that they might here be rooted and grounded. Rooted refers to botany. That's life. And grounded refers to architecture. That's stability. That they might have life and stability. And this is for all the saints and that they might now know something of the love of Christ that passeth knowledge. And if it passes knowledge, then we can't understand it. But he says here that you might be filled with all the fullness of God, and that you might know something here, he says, of the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of Christ. Well, the breadth of it is the arms of Christ reach around the world. I'm the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. 
The length of it begins with the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world and proceeds unto the throne before which there is a Lamb that had been slain. And then the depth of it goes all the way to the death of the cross. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And the height of it reaches to the throne of God, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And only the Holy Spirit can lead a believer into the vast experience of the love of Christ. It's infinite, and it's beyond human comprehension, and that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now he says, Now to him who is able to do beyond all things superabundantly, beyond what we ask or think, according to the power which worketh in us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, unto all the generations of the ages of the ages of the ages, of the ages, throughout eternity. This is a doxology and it's a benediction. It concludes the prayer of Paul and it also concludes the first main division of this epistle. This is a mighty outburst of spiritual praise. I wonder if you could think God's thoughts after him by reading this or as I read it, could you say, them's my sentiments? Is that what you could say? We are not able to so much as touch the hem of the garment of the spiritual gifts God's prepared to give to his own. Oh, how wonderful this is, that he might give to us superabundantly. Oh, how good he is, and how small we are. We just can't contain all of his blessings.